Hello, this is Father Son Galaxy. I am Kerwin, and this is Keith. Superman the movie opened in the United States December 15th, 1978. I was 10 years old when I saw the film that month. After I left the theater, that movie truly made me believe that a man can fly. December 15th, 2023 marks the 45th anniversary of the release of the film. Superman the movie starred Marlon Brando as Jarrell. Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor, and Christopher Reeve as the Man of Steel. The film was a critical and box office success. It earned $300 million worldwide, making it the second highest grossing movie in 1978. The film was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, and Best Sound. Superman earned a Special Achievement Award for Best Visual Effects. In 2017, Superman the movie was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress National Film Registry. To help us celebrate this groundbreaking movie is Daniel Sanchez, a graphics designer, art director, and Superman cosplayer. He is the author of the article, Christopher Reeve's Superman is Back and Still Relevant After 45 Years, which you can read on the website dailyplanetdc.com. Daniel Sanchez, welcome to Father Sun Galaxy. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, guys, um, this is a real honor. I've seen your episodes. They're wonderful. I love this whole concept of the way that you do your podcast. Um, thank you so much for having me on. No, thank you. Thank you. This is a pleasure. So I talked about I was 10 years old when I saw the movie for the very first time. And I remember going to see it in a Brooklyn. I was living in Brooklyn at the time um, with my sister-in-law, my brother, and my cousin. And I just had the best time. I just remembered walking into the theater and, you know, just it was just truly a, a, a movie going experience and walking out of the theater, just being so thrilled and happy and excited about what I just saw. Can you tell me what you can remember when you saw it for the first time? Well, not to steal your thunder, but I was 10 years old when I saw it. Um so what, what I think people need to remember is that Star Wars had come out the year before. So all of my friends and I were nine and Star Wars came out, which really is the perfect age to be a little boy in America and see Star Wars. And so all that summer, it was Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, all that Christmas, all that next year, everybody's birthday or the presents were Star Wars, Star Wars. So you get to Christmas of 1978. It's still Star Wars everywhere. Nothing beats Star Wars. It's the best thing ever. Nothing will ever be better than Star Wars. And then... Dun, 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 dun. And I was... Star Wars who? <laughs> Star Wars what? <laughs> it, it took me to this whole other phase of childhood and life. And... <coughs> I think looking back, I would just have to sum it up as it was the first time in my young life where I saw someone on a big screen and I thought to myself, I want to be him. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. And it's funny. You're right. It came out one year after Star Wars. I didn't see Star Wars in 1977. It took me a few years later to see it. So I had nothing to compare it to, but now that I've seen both films, it was just, like you said, it was just the perfect moment for Superman to come out. I believe they were, they were both filming at the same time, mm -hmm. pretty much, or Superman started earlier, but went through 
delays and and budget overruns and they ended up ending their production run after Star Wars but nevertheless Star Wars came out first and the the producers were able to capitalize on what Star Wars did as far as their visual effects their sound their music their production design so I, I you know it was I, I think having Star Wars come out first really enhanced the movie going experience for Superman because they had a something to um, refer to, you know, they weren't going out there blindsided. Although there are some things that they had to do that Star Wars could not do, they still had to make us believe a man can fly. But at least they knew that it could happen. You know, if they had the right people um, in in position and the, the the right talent to do it, and you had the the the, the best director, obviously, that he was not going to take no for an answer. Um, but you're right; it, it it was wonderful how it happened that Star Wars would come out first, and then just a year later than Superman. Yeah, and and Keith, something I think you'll appreciate is if you watch both movies, every now and then you'll see the same actor that's in Star Wars and in Superman. And every now and then you'll see something that's the same because they were both filmed in England in Shepperton Studios. And one of the things that I'm going to tell you, Keith, that maybe your friends don't know, is the box where Obi-Wan opens up the lid and hands Luke Darth Vader's lightsaber and says, this belonged to your father and now it belongs to you, is the same prop that Lex Luthor opens the top and takes out the kryptonite and holds it in front of Superman for the very first time. Yeah. I didn't even know that. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I didn't even see that. So that one, that one box held... Darth Vader's lightsaber and yep. Lex Luthor's kryptonite inside of it. That's iconic. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you believe the Superman movie is still relevant today? So that is obviously the title of the article that I wrote. And I based that on not just my opinion, but interviews that I conducted in the Texas theater here in uh, Dallas of the people who had decided to leave their homes, make a night of it, and experience it in the theater again. You know, they chose to make this a nostalgic revisit of something that was important to them. So um, I literally dressed as Clark Kent and took my Daily Planet business cards and interviewed as Clark what that crowd thought. And their answers were really heartwarming. Um, most of them talked about how it inspired them in some way to do something for others in their life. There was one gentleman who is a tow truck operator and he considers his job no small job. He knows that he is often the rescuer when people need it most. And he thinks of what he does as an elevated way to live in the world. Um, Some people would talk about they saw it with their dad and their dad's no longer with them. But when they see this movie, it's like he can feel his dad there with him again. Um, Some people just saw it as a way to look at people from a more global view through his eyes. You could see that some of the smaller fighting and issues are, not the way you have to look at it. You can choose to look at it another way. So those are things that are always 
we are always going to want to stay close with our dads. We're always going to want to try to look at the world a better way. We're always going to hopefully want to interact with others in a way that makes everyone's life better. So the messages that were in that first script of here's a man who just doesn't conceive of living any other way than wanting to help. That's why I think it's still relevant because you can pick any decade. A man like that is valuable. A girl can see this movie and say, I want to do that. Anyone can see this movie and say, I want to be that in my community. I want to be that for my family. I want to be that for my children. I want to be that in a relationship. Um, it will be relevant another 45 years from now because of that purity. Why do you think Christopher Reeve's performance is so well-valued? And why do fans still talk about it so much? The main thing that people really still talk about is how well he also did Clark Kent. Um, we have had some really good Superman, and I'm a fan of, of, of all of the different portrayals. But I think the way that his Clark so became a whole different person. And you have to imagine what that acting process was like. And I've read a lot of articles of, of Christopher Reeve's approach and his, his method. Um, I can tell you that he based a lot of his performance on Cary Grant's performance <laughs> in an old film called Bringing Up Baby, where he played a glasses wearing shy nerd who hunched over and sort of stammered and, um, but if you if you find some of, of Reeves' interviews, he'll talk about how he wanted there to be this connection between Clark Kent and a real life. He wanted to know, like, what was it to be human? Because as an adopted alien from somewhere else, somewhere outside of these people, um, you can imagine the one thing he wanted the most was to be one of these people. So in his mind, Clark Kent was who he was. Superman was what he did. And I think Christopher Reeve really took the time to think about that and, and work it through and embody, like, what if, unlike some of the rest of us who wear the shirts and we imagine, what if we could fly? What if we could lift a boulder? What if we could, you know, he imagined the opposite. He can do all those things, but what he wants is to be one of us. And you see that in the way he looks at Lois and how much he, he values his friendship with Jimmy, the way Christopher Reeve's eyes just come across, it, it really tells that story. Yeah. There are so many ways this movie could have not worked. Um, and, and one of the things that they had to do was they had to find the right person to play Superman. And they went through hundreds of actors. The producers, I, from what I understand, wanted to have uh, a famous person or, or a, a, a named celebrity play Superman. So there, are, you know, you heard the names of uh, Paul Newman or Robert Redford or Clint Eastwood. Um, even Muhammad Ali is from what I heard was, you know, looked at to play Superman, which and Richard Donner said, no, we can't have that. It has to be an unknown. You, you, no one's going to believe Robert Redford 
as Superman. They're just going to see Robert Redford in tights. They're not mm-hmm. going to take him seriously. They're not going to say, hey, he's Superman. No, they're going to say, hey, that's Robert Redford. So, and <clears throat> Christopher Reed just kept getting passed on. You know, the, the the casting director would put his photo in with the rest of the photos and Donna would just kept passing over his photo because they thought he was, you know, maybe too tall, not too tall, but too skinny, or he looked too too awkward. It didn't work out, but they finally brought him in. Um, and he was a he was a skinny, you know, young man. And he walked in and he had to pretend, you know, they had to put him in this uh, bodysuit, make him look like he had muscles and, you know, but he had the voice and the presence um, and it worked out for him. I mean, I, I honestly could not see anyone at that time, anyone else who could play Superman. Yeah. yeah. Well, at that time, you I know, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, know. yeah, like, this, I heard. right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but but Keith, it's also a really good story of not giving up because the casting director would put Christopher Reeve's photo on the top of the pile, and Donna would go, "Oh, this kid again," and just toss it. And then they would interview more people. They couldn't find anybody. He'd tell the casting director, "Give me more people." So he would. He'd bring a whole other pile of different people, and then put Chris's photo on the top again. And he did this three, four times. And every time, Richard Donner's like, "This kid keeps being on the top of my pile." So he finally, finally said all right, I'll see him. And when Christopher Reeve finally got his audition, he says he wore the biggest, thickest, bulkiest blue sweater he could so that he wouldn't look so skinny. And as much as we smile about, oh, he's an actor and, you know, of course he did what he did. The unsung hero of all of this is that casting director who didn't give up. He's the one who saw something in this unknown actor enough that the first time Richard Donner said, I don't want to see this kid again, he didn't just go, okay. He put him on the top of the pile again and again and again. So we owe that casting director a thank you for everything that happened afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And that casting director's name is Lynn Stallmaster. So he was a very, very popular casting director over the years. So he was the one. And Christopher Reeve is Juilliard trained, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's top of the line right there as far as acting. Keith, do you know who Christopher Reeve's best friend was at Juilliard? No. I'll give you a hint. Um, He was Peter Pan. He was Mork from Orc. Let me see. I'm trying to see something that you would have seen this actor in. I don't think you saw Hook. Um, You don't know Mork and Mindy. That's very interesting. I don't think you know this actor. His name is Robin Williams. That name sounds familiar? No. Yeah. <laughs> it does? Really? Where do, you, where do you think you've heard that name? The news. In the news. Okay. Uh, okay. So he has not he, seen any Robin Williams films. So. I was going to give your dad a chance, but I was going to hit you with the zinger. He's the voice of the genie in Aladdin. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. All right. That makes more sense. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. So. Yes. You know. Thanks for bringing it down to my level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but yeah, a, a majority of his films were actually considered adult-oriented themes, so you okay. wouldn't have seen any of his films outside of Hook. But we have not seen Hook yet. What is Hook? That's about Peter Pan. So he plays Peter Pan. Movie called Hook, directed by Steven Spielberg. I see. Yes. Do you have a question? 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. The, the the tiredness is setting in. Okay. Um, what were some of the other standout performances in the movie? Besides um, Reeve, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, if if you ask somebody like your dad and I, we're going to just say all of them. So um, I think that you have to give credit to everyone in that cast because no one had ever made a big superhero movie before. And so it's not like it is today where somebody says, do you want to be in a superhero movie? And you instantly go, of course I do. Back then, they were prepared for ridicule. This could have been the biggest embarrassment of all of their careers. So I, I almost have to preface my answer by saying that everyone in this cast was being very brave taking this on. And um, there were people who said that Margot Kidder wasn't pretty enough to be Lois Lane. And um, Gene Hackman wasn't really bald. And so they had all of the, the typical, not like it is today, but still there were some of the fans who said, oh, come on, what are they doing? Um, but I can tell you that Richard Donner and his good friend, uh, Tom Mankiewicz, who we all credit for having the screen writing so polished and the story corrected uh, to give us what we got. They both felt that that balcony scene between Superman when he first comes to give an interview to Lois Lane because he totally has a crush on Lois Lane and uh, he's taking advantage of the fact that she now has a crush on Superman so this is his way to talk to her because he's shy. Um, they, they both said, screenwriter and director, that if that scene doesn't work, the whole movie doesn't work. The audience has to believe that these two people have secret crushes on each other and they have to love these two people and they have to root for these two people. So when you rewatch that scene, all of those little nuances, which I've studied Christopher Reeve's body language for my performances and, and the way he'll just sit and he'll just have his, his finger over his mouth is something people do when they're shy. It's, um, it's a psychological, uh, almost a protective mechanism. When someone's not sure if they want to say something, they'll cover their mouth almost as a barrier. And it's a signal that they're not entirely confident. So every now and then you'll see Superman do this. And every now and then you'll see Lois just look up, almost surprised that something came out of her mouth because she didn't think she was going to say, you know, out loud a thought that she had. And now it's too late. Now it's out loud. Um, I would have to say Margot Kidder would be my answer because that bit of almost like you're really watching two people really do this. Um, everything else in the movie was a, a cakewalk if they got that right. And you have to remember Christopher Reeve was 24 years old when he got this job. So one day, Keith, when you turn 24, ask yourself, could you be the unknown star of a worldwide superhero movie for the very first time that young? Because it may not seem like it now, but 24 is very, very young. And Margot, I think, was not much older than him. She's actually older, but you still have these two fairly young people with this huge responsibility on their shoulders. And the fact that they not only did it, but they made it charming and they made you smile and they made you fall in love with both of them. Um, Academy Award for being the other half of the team that lifted up this whole movie to Margot Kidder. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. The chemistry had to work in order to pull this all off. And they had it, both of them. So, yeah, well done to Margot Kidder and, and Christopher Reeve. Um, I want to talk briefly about the music. Um, so the story goes that Richard Donner wanted Jerry Goldsmith to actually mm -hmm. score the film. And then because the film just kept going uh, in overtime and over budget and it was extending their deadline, they went past their, their deadline, Jerry Goldsmith was no longer available. But John Williams was, was ready, available. He just came right after Star Wars. I think he might have done The Fury maybe in between. Um, but talk about the music. How important is the music in this film? It is another character that is just as much alive in the film as any of the, the human characters. There, if, if you think of the music as a voice that speaks, there are times where the music speaks when no one else does and you, you hear it very, very clearly. And that's not true of all movies, it's not true of all composers, but John Williams was just a master of his craft. And like, like Clapton playing a guitar solo, if he wants you to cry, he can make you cry. And John Williams knew how to make you feel something in the moment that you were supposed to, and yet still somehow fit in and and have a balance with what you were seeing on screen, um, like a character in an ensemble cast. Um, I could also tell you that the very first time that Richard Donner heard the theme, so John Williams comes in and he's got this cassette, and you know he's he's saying, "Well, here's what I'm thinking," um, and. Again, Keith, you have to understand this, this period of time where we've had Superman before, but it was on TV. And before that, maybe your dad saw him in the movie theater in these serial shorts, these little you know eight minute um, chapter by chapter, black and white. Um, I don't know, they'd, they'd have maybe 10 chapters in a story that would play before a movie when you would go in the movie theater. Um, and so we had Kirk Allen playing that Superman and on television, you had George Reeves playing that Superman and they had Superman themes, but they were very John Philip Sousa March. They were very sort of, you know, even as a kid, I thought those sound old, you know, they're not, they're not anything that I would re really like. So here I am, I'm 10 years old and you know, you're sitting in the theater and John Williams music comes on and it's not old. And it's not small. It, it's not coming out of a little TV speaker. John Williams' music filled your world. And when the music soared, you soared. And when Lois died, there was no music. It was just... So you not only notice his music, you notice the absence of his music. And that's when you know the music matters. Yeah. Yeah, I... When, what I like about how the music was used in the film and music nowadays is, is it, it, it plays a different role depending on the, the composer, I guess. But um, if you compare it to how music is used today versus how it was done in 78, John Williams was given so much space to let the music breathe. You know, for example, this the opening titles went a little over five minutes, which today... I don't think anyone could sit, sit still 
with Most five minutes of title. Have attention span shorter right. than goldfish on average. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, the, the attention span really is, destroyed that. is no longer there, you know. So back then, but yes, we sat through it and, you know, I loved it. I, mm-hmm. I thought it was wonderful. I wanted the music to keep playing. Um, and the, the flying sequence with Lois right. and Superman, those type of scenes, you don't see that anymore in in movies. You know, the, you know, composers not given that much time to let their music play out, you know, and, and to, you know, make people feel the music and, you know, like you said, be a character in, in the film. It's, to me, a majority of it, well, in particular with superhero films, it's background music. You don't really pay much attention to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, Keith, another thing, and, and I know I keep saying this, but it's true. Like, you have to remember the time where this, this film came out. And in the 70s, the popular types of movie genres were disaster movies. So you had movies called Earthquake about earthquakes and you had the Poseidon adventure about a ship that was sinking and you had, you know, B movies that were just anything that would destroy cities, volcano, you know, asteroids, but people loved to see these big disaster movies. They also liked romances and some of those romances in the seventies had musicals. And I'm not particularly a musical fan, but America in the seventies was so even when you get to that bit of Superman and Lois flying, um, you have to remember that's what the people of that time thought romance was, is you take the time to have this whole song and one of the characters is basically singing their thoughts out loud, but that was charming then. We wouldn't do it that way anymore, but back then it was it was the the cherry on top of, yes, these two people are in love. I want to talk about the ending. Um, in particular, the Superman turning back the world. Now, which is interesting. When I saw it at 10 years old, I didn't really quite follow what was going on. I mean, I understood that Superman turned the world back and he changed everything back. The earthquake, you know, as if the earthquake never existed. Like you said, Lois died at the end, but she came back to life. Um, and I accepted it. You know, I was 10. But as I got older... It did feel, it does feel to me that the ending was a little rushed, that maybe that wasn't the the ending that they were looking for. But I, I think what it did was it was like a foretelling of these future superhero films. Because Keith and I actually did a segment where we talked about time travel yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, the Flash with Flashpoint, right? And the story is very similar where a character decides that they're going to go back in time to save a loved one. And it just so happens that's what happened 45 years ago, you know? So I don't know if that was planned that way or what do you think about the ending? I mean, how does it resonate now with the, the superhero films of today? Well, there's there's two ways to talk about the, the world spin ending. One is in the context of the story itself, you know, of how Superman felt in that moment and what he did. The other is the behind the scenes story of the producer and the director and the writer and the sequel. So the original idea was that that was not how the first movie was supposed to end. And the end of the first movie was that he saved Lois. He was fast enough and he got there in time. But sort of like Avengers, you had 
this ending where you realize, oh, but it's not over. Because if you remember those three Kryptonians in black at the beginning of the movie, well, at the end of the movie, the missile that Superman gets in time and throws into space and explodes is the thing that breaks the Phantom Zone and releases the three villains. So the end of the first movie was supposed to be Zod and Ursa and Nan escape and they see Earth and they head straight for it and screen goes to black and we're all, oh no, he has no idea they're coming. And then it was going to say Superman 2. Yeah. How about that? Like, unfortunately. That was, unfortunately. Yeah. That, better yeah. ending, actually. <laughs> that was the ending yeah. that Tom Mankiewicz wrote. That was the ending Richard right. Donner filmed. Now, what went wrong with that? Grownups. Grownups went wrong with that. Yeah. The... Yeah the producers so you know the the ones who felt like they called all the shots um separately from all of this got into a money argument with marlon brando with jor-el and did not want to have him in the second movie and then they kept telling richard donna the director you're going over budget and richard said well then tell me how much i'm supposed to spend and they would never tell him but they would only tell him you're going over budget you're spending too much but we're not going to tell you how much you get but it's too much and so it eventually got to the point where richard donner didn't even want the producers on set anymore and they had to bring in another director to basically pass notes in class richard would tell this guy go tell the directors this he'd go he'd come back he'd say well they told me to tell you this and he'd say well then you tell them i said this and that's how the rest of the filming went and they were supposed to be making both of these movies at the same time superman one and two so they could have all the actors and then be done after the first three-fourths of the first movie was finished the directors really worried what if it fails remember we talked about before this could have been a huge embarrassment this could have been a big a big flop so they worried what if we only ever get to make one movie we're spending all of our time trying to film two of them at the same time so they completely changed their minds and they said we're going to act like there's just one so they took the ending from the second movie which was superman could not beat three kryptonians as strong as he is which as a kid to me, that made sense because you might be on the schoolyard and maybe you're as big as one kid, but if there's three of them, my chances are not good. And so the end of the movie was he lost. Zod wins. And the only thing that Superman can do is to break his father's rule of you cannot interfere with human history. But at this point, it's either disobey my father or Zod rules earth forever. And so he decides it's worth disobeying my father. And then he puts the world back to before the nuclear missile blows up the Phantom Zone. And he corrects that. And he just takes the blame on himself of it's what I had to do. And that was going to be the end of the second movie. But the producers didn't have enough faith. And so they took that ending and put it on the first movie. Yeah. Just so they can finish the first movie and, you know, get it. Right. They had and, a, originally a due date of s the summer of 1978, and they missed that due date. 
the next one was Christmas. So they definitely wanted to make sure that they had the film ready by then. Right. And had they just had faith, it would have been a tremendous success and they could have had everything exactly as originally planned. And it would have been more like Avengers Endgame where it was intentional and it had that much more power. But, um, you know, blame them or not, it is what happened. And so we all watched a movie where we got to the end and we went, wait, what? <laughs> how, how, did, how did this all work? Um, and so I will say, though, that it made me that much more interested in science because I knew as a 10-year-old, you can't just spin a basketball backwards and have it go back in time. That's not how time works. And you can't move the earth that way or all the oceans get messed up and, you know, like things fall over. You can't just spin a top with stuff on it. But I didn't know what the science was. I only knew what it wasn't. So it made me want to find out. And that's when I learned about Einstein and the theory of relativity and how speed is the relationship between one thing and another thing. So if you've ever been in a car, Keith, like in the parking lot, have you ever looked out the window when somebody else is backing out and you think, did we just go forward? It's that, yeah. it's that effect. So, and I get in this conversation all the time because everyone knows I'm a Superman fan and they always go, what about that ending? It's not him spinning the world back like a basketball. It's him flying around the world so that his speed compared to another thing exceeds the speed of light. And therefore, because light and space and time are connected, he and only he is going backwards in time. But that means he doesn't have to have a DeLorean or a rocket ship or, or the Terminator 2 spinning circles, which, by the way, operate on the same principle because... You have the Terminator and then Reese standing in the middle of these two circles that are going in opposite directions. So again, one speed compared to another speed, one object compared to another object made the bubble that made the time go back in time. So I don't know if I would have really been interested in all of that to the level that I was had it not been for Superman the movie. And now you can talk Einstein. <laughs> That's awesome. So it's basically just Superman's perception. Then. Yes. 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 So if you imagine you're going back in time, it looks like water is going up faucets and trees, you know, have leaves getting sucked back into their branches. It was his perception. The dam is, is coming back to before it burst is his perception of like, if you rewound a film backwards, that's all it is. And the director needed some way to visually show what that felt like to him. And that's the way they showed it. So it's not Superman turning back. the. <clears throat> that's weird. So it's no. not Superman turning back the world. It's literally Superman breaking the space time barrier and going back in time. Yes. To then hop to a certain event. You yes. know what? After all those laps, he really only got to be like, like two hours earlier. I mean, he could have just went to before Lex Luthor got control of the missiles and then stopped him there. Ah, uh, see, so you've walked into my favorite topic. <laughs> so, yes, he only went back as far as he needed to because, in my opinion, he knew he was already disobeying his father a little bit. The further he goes back in time, the more of human history he's interfering with. And his 
father's exact words were, it is forbidden to interfere with human history. So if he only goes back to that second missile, then he's only interfering with that amount of minutes of human history. So he's disobeying his father the least amount that he can to still save Lois. Right. And not face any consequences for what he did. Right. And also knowing he saved everyone. He saved the kids on the school bus. He saved the town from from the dam. So he didn't have to go back and, and redo that. But it's, um, it's because he's just Superman. And he didn't want to disobey his father more than he absolutely had to. It's kind of like The Flash. Yes. There's this episode on season four, episode 15, where he went back in time, or, well, froze time, essentially, because a bomb went off. But the whole episode was this massively convoluted plan to go back into the Speed Force and collect lightning that Mm -hmm. has a billion joules of energy to counteract the bomb's explosion. And this is the same lightning that was literally strong enough to destroy all of Central City and possibly the world in um in the last season. So I don't know why he would just, you know, run through a warehouse full of all his friends and family to go throw a lightning bolt at a literal bomb when he could have just ran back in time two seconds. Not only that, he called in two other speedsters to help him out. He had three other speedsters at his fingertips, but two for some reason. All that could have been solved by running back in time two seconds and smacking the device out of that lady's hand so she can't hit the button. There you go. And, And that's the great thing about some of these stories is that when you feel like you could have solved it a smarter way, then as a reader or as a viewer, you feel pretty, pretty great. Why did you want to cosplay as Superman? Uh, you can blame Speed Racer for that. <laughs> um, I was born in 1968, just like your dad. And so when I was about three years old, four years old, five years old, we got this brand new thing on television called Japanese animation. And um, there were a couple of shows at most. Um, We got Ultraman, which was sort of a live action, big giant guy fights a Godzilla type monster every week. Um, But they're bigger than the city. So they're throwing her, you know, punches around three times the size of these buildings. Um, And the other one was Speed Racer. And I thought he was absolutely the coolest thing on television. The way the drawings were done, the way how fast they talked, the energy that it had, and just the fact that he had the coolest car. I thought the the Mach 5 was even cooler than the Batmobile, and I will die on that hill. And uh, he was just always my favorite. So fast forward to now I'm an adult, and I'm in my, gosh, in my 40s. And uh, my wife and I had gone to a Halloween party and I was Tony Stark and she was Tomb Raider and we had a good time and I won a contest. I won $50 um, at this party for being the, the best costume. And I thought, oh, that was fun. And then February comes around and 
uh, as I said, we live here in Dallas and there was going to be an event where they were going to bring life-size cars of the Batmobile, the Ghostbusters Ectoplasm One, the Scooby-Doo van, the Jurassic Park Jeep. The mystery machine. Yes. The mystery machine. Yep. And the Mach 5 from Speed Racer. And these guys, I guess, were just geniuses at rebuilding cars and they had made these cars. So I find out about this and I tell my wife, you're, you're going to think that I'm a five-year-old, but I, I want to go see the Speed Racer car like really, really badly. I need to sit in the car. I need to have my hands on the wheel and I need to, in my mind, be Speed Racer. And um, she looked at me with those eyes that are both... I'm so sorry that you're a child and also, but I love you. So the answer is yes, we'll, we'll go do that. And I said, before you say yes, I have to be honest. It's one of those conventions, you know, where people dress up like comic book characters and they're a little weird and, you know, and I said, but maybe we just pull out our Halloween costumes and, and we just go, I said, just for an afternoon, I just want to go sit in the car. So, you know, I'm, I'm practically, begging like you do when you're five like, you know, if I could have offered to clean my room I would have and so we we go we go to this we go to this uh comic con here in Dallas and I can't wait we walk into this big lobby where they're all going to be this huge space and there's nothing there's the rope and there's a sign that says we're sorry due to circumstances out of our control the vendor did not arrive and so the cars aren't there. And now I'm standing around dressed like Tony Stark <laughs> just for no reason. But what was there was a group of cosplayers and they were taking a big group photo. And uh, there was a guy dressed as the old school Adam West Batman from the 60s TV show. And so he sees me as Tony Stark and I've got this, the shiny you know, arc reactor. I've got the beard, the whole bit. And he waves and uh, he says, hey, billionaire, and uh, I'm kind of a smart Alex, so I waved back at Bruce Wayne and I said, hey, millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And the, uh, the crowd laughed and he laughed. He, he understood. It was a joke. He thought it was funny. So he waved me over and he goes, come join our picture. And I said, no, no, no. You guys are obviously a group here. And he goes, no, no, no. Come on. Um, so I went and I kneeled down and uh, right, right next to, to Batman there. And then they took the picture and after it was over, I said, so, you know, what kind of group are you that you're doing this? And he says, well, we're a children's charity. And one of the things we do is we dress up in costumes and we visit sick kids in hospitals. Mm. And I don't think he finished a sentence before I said, I'm in, how do I volunteer? And that was the beginning of, of me cosplaying, but it was as Tony Stark. So, uh, one day they had a Superman who couldn't make it. And the president of the charity called me and, and said, you know, would you do it? And I said, well, I, I will, but I have to shave the Tony goatee. So I can't be Tony for two more weeks if I, if I do this. And he goes, no, it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, and so I did it just to fill in. And I cannot describe to you the feeling of walking into a room of children as Superman. Yeah. It, it superseded, pun intended, um, any feeling that I ever had as Tony Stark or any other life experience that I ever had. The 
the immediate love and trust and the desire to be Superman's friend is unequaled. I could only compare it maybe to being Santa Claus, how much a child would love and trust Santa. Yeah. Um, they would tell me everything about their lives and it was the unvarnished truth. And all they wanted was for Superman to like them. And um, when, when people say like, oh, I did it once and I got the bug, you know, I, I got the acting bug, I got the music bug. I did this one time and I got the bug. Um, and so I have, I've literally been Superman ever since. Yeah. And I've, I've only tried to get better and better at it. Yeah. It, and, and you know, you look incredible in the suit. I mean, it's wonderful. And you really take it very seriously. And you actually pay homage to Christopher Reeve's Superman, not just mm -hmm. any Superman. Because I noticed uh, you also recreated the photo shoot that Christopher Reeve went through uh, for publicity. You know, mm -hmm. there was you standing on top of a building with the New York City backdrop behind you. And I also saw one where you recreated the cover of Action Comics, you holding the, the car. It was pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. How were you able to recreate those images? Um, with the help of photographers who are equally nerdy, <laughs> who love this as yeah. much as I do and who want no money. They just want to say that they were able to help do that. Um, the, the action comics, number one, um, the photographer's name is Scott Endersby and, uh, he lives here outside of Dallas. Um, and he runs his own charitable efforts, um, for disabled kids. And I was doing a photo shoot at his studio to help him out with one of his efforts. And we had a big green screen and, um, we were promoting um, sign language and acceptance and some other things. And so we finished that photo shoot of Superman doing some sign language. And he basically said, well, we're here. You're in costume. We've got a green screen. Is there anything you want to do? Um, and I said, well, maybe there's a couple of things. And so we literally just on the spot, like kids, just looked around. And there was a white three-legged stool. So I thought, oh. And so I put the school down. Uh, the stool, excuse me, uh, and laid on it with just my stomach and like a child just held my arms out, held my feet out and pretended like I was flying. And we turned those into photos that recreated Superman flying through the canyon. Um, and we took the round case that some of his lighting equipment goes in and I just held it over my head and that later became the pose of me lifting up the car on action number one. Um, and I had some other friends. There's a guy named Aaron Price who is well known in the Superman community for his uh, video editing. And um, he's restoring Superman four scene by scene. Um, he composited a lot of that together. So the, the criminals that are screaming in terror, it's actually, self-portraits of Aaron all three times. So he's all three of the criminals <laughs> that are um, just stunned that a man can lift up a car. And for the, the standing out in front of New York City, we just took those in September. Um, I was invited down to Florida for a national celebrity impersonator convention and didn't have any eight by tens. I didn't have any promotional materials. 
And there was a photographer who said, I'm the biggest Superman fan. He had a podcast of his own. And he said, would you allow me to just take you out? So we got, I got there a day early and we just went to downtown Orlando, Florida and found places to stand and recreate it. And he had it all in his head. He knew exactly what we were doing. And he did the compositing. He put the New York City behind me um, and he color adjusted it. And the very next day I had these eight by tens for that convention, but it's, it's the other people in the community that have the same love and passion and all of their childhood stories about why they love it so much. Um, frankly, sometimes I'm like a big toy for the, for photographers. Um, when I get the hair right and when I get the smile right and I have a good Cape day, they just don't want to go home. They, they'll just take photos until the sun goes down. Um, it's, it's really wonderful. Yeah. I, your Instagram page is is wonderful. It's full of great photos. One in particular I enjoy, and you're talking about your charity, how important it is for, for children to see their hero to make them feel good or, or make them happy. There was one that you took of two little boys. I don't know if they were, if they were brothers or not. One of them was standing next to you. You were cosplaying as Superman, and you were holding the other boy. And both of their arms were way up in the air as if they were going to take off. And I thought that was a beautiful, beautiful photo. Yeah, that, that's one of my favorites. That was yeah. this year. Um, I, when I first moved to Texas, I moved from New York and I was 15. And one of the very first things I did was go to a comic book store. And uh, I met a guy who was the assistant manager there. Uh, his name's Ron Killingsworth. And he stayed in the comic book business. So he later owned that store he took it over and then got another store and then bought two other stores from somebody else so next thing you know my friend ron owns a chain of comic book stores um well i've been friends with ron now for 40 years and he had a grand opening event at a new store and so this picture you're talking about he asked would i come out in costume and help him with his grand opening so this is out in the mall in front of his in front of his new store and kids who did not know this was going on you know they were just being dragged to the mall for new shoes and probably didn't want to be there turn a corner and all of a sudden there's superman and their jaws just drop and their eyes get about as big as their head and you can feel them sort of tugging on their mom you know can i go over there can i go over there it's it's really the the cutest thing but it still comes down to all they want is for Superman to like them and tell them that they're a good kid. And um, every everybody from every walk of life, um, they all see Superman universally the same way. It does not matter what language you speak. It does not matter where your parents came from. It does not matter. They see that S and to them, that means everyone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as we wrap it up, I wanted to ask you one final question. I was listening to an interview that you did on a previous podcast, and you told this great story about this little girl. Uh, I believe it was a Dallas convention. It was a little girl who came up to you dressed as Princess Leia. Can mm -hmm. you tell us that story? Yes. So um, she was about eight or nine, um, cute little girl, and uh, she was a little timid coming up to me at first, but then she just 
decided, no, I'm going to do this. So whatever it was that she had to tell me, you could tell she decided this is important. And she was very, very grown up when she, when she walked up to me, but she, she tugged on my cape and I looked down cause I was in the middle of a conversation, but I, I looked down and, and she just gave me this hug and she said, I'm sorry that your planet blew up too. And then walked away. And the lovely thing about that story is that she was one of the few children I've ever met who felt it upon herself to comfort Superman. That she wanted Superman to know that she knew how he felt and she wanted to give that comfort and that hug and that understanding to Superman. And her hesitation was trying to decide, do I leave without doing that or do I stay and do it? And she chose to do it. And that is one of those reaffirming moments of humanity where I think if, if we as a people still have kids like that, we, we might end up okay. Yeah. And it just comes down to believing, you know, all you have to do is believe. Yeah. That's a beautiful story. This was, this has been incredible. I know we can go on for another hour or so, but this this was so wonderful to have you on here, Daniel. Where can people find you? Um, well, I hope they can continue to go to The Real Daily Planet. Um, if you don't know, there is a real one. It does publish articles, and I really am a reporter for the great Montreal newspaper. Um, it's dailyplanetdc.com. Um, I plan to do two more articles in 2024. Um, one will be the true story of when Christopher Reeve um, rescued hostages in another country, not Superman, Christopher Reeve, the actor. Um, and another story will be about how for a few years on planet Earth, there really was a fortress of solitude with hundred foot crystals, a cavern filled with basically the exact visual from the movie um how did it get like that where is it now you'll have to read the article to find out um you can also uh come to my instagram anytime it's at wearing the cape so um i hope to see you both in both places yes absolutely this is incredible keith where can people find us Okay. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Socials are Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fathersun Galaxy, website FathersonGalaxy.com. Please check out our merch store, Patreon. Please check out our merch store, FathersonGalaxy.myspreadshop.com, and our Patreon page, Patreon.com slash Fathersun Galaxy. Um, that's it. Yeah. We would absolutely love to bring you back on the podcast and talk some more. Like I said, I mean, we can go on for hours, but I, I am just, I, I love what you do. And I love the smiles that you put on these little boys and girls faces. So continue to keep doing that work. It's great work. Um, not everyone could pull off Superman. I mean, you really have to have the confidence and the presence to, to, to wear that suit and to, and to be, uh, and to feel feel like you are Superman in that suit and, and make it look believable to all these little kids. So thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. And I will, I would love to come back. Ask me anytime. Um, Keith, you probably already know, but the time is going to come in your life where you're really going to treasure. You got to do this with your dad. This is a very special thing that you do. 
and I would be glad to be a part of it. That's truly, truly a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. Truly a pleasure meeting you. Thank you, everyone, for this special podcast episode of Superman the movie, you know, our retrospective and looking back. It 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 really means a lot to me and it's so great to share it with somebody this who is the same age as I am, who saw it the same year as I did, and just reminisce about this film that's so important to our hearts. So thank you once again, everyone, for for tuning in or listening or watching. Until next time, take care and we and will we'll see, see you again. again. <laughs>